to self do not record these podcasts during heat waves in darkened rooms without windows um hello there um my name's ewan welcome to msg 10 uh, movement scenes and genres where as you know um if you're a regular listener we invite a guest on to well talk us through a movement or a scene or a genre of music and pick 10 pick 10 songs for us to talk about and listen to if you are listening on our website that's infrequency.co.uk or on our mixcloud that's mixcloud.com slash tempfans um you'll be hearing this uh, with all the tunes legally um which is pretty much the best way to do it if you're listening to it on your pod player you'll hear some little musical bloop, bloop, in between us talking and there'll be a playlist linked somewhere but it's not the ideal way to do it if you want to support this show and also our sister show temporary fandoms um head over to the aforementioned websites or mixed clouds and for a couple of euros dollars pounds a month uh you can support the show and get some i, I, I say exclusive stuff but just go and have a look. Just go and have a look. Um, other episodes have included things as diverse as New York No Wave, noise rock, protest songs, disco. And today we're, well, well, let's find out. I'm, I'm joined by, I'm, I want to say the word empresario of tiny global productions, <laughs> um, which I'll ask you about in a minute. Um, John Henderson, who, if you have been listening to our regular Temporary Fandoms podcast, you will have first heard him on our fall episodes talking about the fall, and yet then you will have heard him on our Buzzcocks episodes talking about Buzzcocks with a member of the fall. So that's a nice, that's a nice character arc. It's John Henderson. Hey, John. Yeah, and, and Pete Shelley's going to be joining us here in a. In a <laughs> oh, oh, that'd be great. Um, all that way. But were, uh, were we nice right. to him? Were, were we nice to him? I can't remember which one. No. Yeah, uh, Diggle. We weren't nice to. I think we were quite nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for coming on, John. Um, I mentioned in the, the preamble uh, that you were empresario of Tiny Global Productions. What is Tiny Global Productions? Tiny Global Productions is a record label, um, technically American, but I, I live here in Spain, so it's kind of run from here. And um, we just release a lot of records by people that I find interesting and artists that I that I like including the Nine Gales and Blue Orchids and Band of Holy Joy and a few that we'll talk about tonight. Oh, fantastic. Um, and obviously, if you want to hear anything more uh, from Tiny Global Productions, I'll put a link in the thingamajig, uh, but also, I mean, Tiny Global Productions, you know, Google Works, Bandcamp, all of that stuff, you, you can find them. So, John, um, what am I titling this episode? What is the movement, the scene, or the genre? That was actually the hardest question I had to find an answer to because really what I, I thought about doing when you asked me were artists that kind of just did their own thing, even if it's sometimes aligned with something, you know, some musical form that was going on at the time or something that stylistically people would recognize. I always like people that had a slightly aberrant uh, voice, musical voice. And so I would just call it aberrance. I don't even know if that's a word. 
But, you so, know. so like musical outsiders kind That's, of thing. Well, they're not really outsiders, though, is the thing. I mean, most of them had some uh, interaction with with something, maybe not mainstream, but something that was going on. But I just like people that didn't, didn't quite fit into even uh, some of the stranger holes, but were still, you know, fairly accessible and likable. I don't think I'm... Um, I don't think I'm going to present anything tonight that's just way off course. Okay, that, that, hasn't helped, that hasn't helped me with the title. I'm going to choose a title at some point during this episode. Yeah. Um, slightly <laughs> off, off kilter, out of the off not kilter. too... That's off kilter. That's off kilter. Yeah. Let's do off kilter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you were saying you wanted to choose artists that had... That was slightly different, maybe that had an abhorrent abhorrence for the not the the bit of the mainstream. I mean, it's quite hard to pigeonhole. I mean, we're basically just doing artists that are slightly out there, um, but not quite. I think if uh, the one way to look at it is if any of these artists, if they fine tuned what they were for for the most part, if they fine tuned what they were doing a little bit with an eye towards overt commerciality, they probably could have cracked it. Yeah, Yeah, and some may still do so. But I I think the thing is they they remain true to that little part of them that was really unique. And and that gets drummed out of many artists uh, along the way. And I like the fact that that all of these people, um, I mean, they're different stories, so it doesn't quite apply to everyone. But all of these artists did what was true to them and do what, for for the few that are still active, do what's true to them. And they, they they don't seem real willing or or anything to change that to sell, you know, another thousand records or something. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there, you can look back at many artists who people hold out, like I know, Nick Drake, mm. for example. Nick Drake was not that successful, but he really wanted to be. And yeah, was but quite- he's a, he's a really good example of of somebody that like I could have had on on here, and the reason I probably didn't is because. He's many decades after the fact, he's sort of become a household name, at least among people who really pay attention to music. Yeah, he wanted to be successful, but he kind of couldn't help doing what he did. And that's what that's what's great about Nick Drake. And I think that's what's great about all of these people is they just still just did it their way. And, and you know, uh, there's a few here that that we'll get to where I can talk about how they kind of came close to some form of popular fame, but they just did what they did. And they're really true musicians. They're really true artists in the sense that they're, they're more concerned with expressing themselves than they are making that weird deal between expressing themselves kind of, and kind of going towards the marketplace. Um, And are we, I mean, most, most guests when they come on, we go chronologically, I think by default, are we going chronologically today or is there a, Jumping around. I don't even think I could have sorted that way if I wanted. <laughs> Some of these recordings are really, um, are just, I don't, I don't, I don't have a clear idea of when they were even recorded. Um, so no, we're not. We're just, I just put together an order I liked. That Well, mostly I put the starting one I liked and the ending one I liked. Everything else was a bit of a gamble. Well, I think on the last episode that came out while I'm talking to, when I'm talking to you about the the Boston Rock and Roll Rumble, uh, guest Brendan quickly said um, he said it was terrible at mixtapes. He put all his all the favorites at the beginning and then just ran out of ideas towards the end. So I'm glad we're starting strongly and finishing strongly. So why don't we start with who your first choice is and why? 
the first choice is um, a song by Essential Logic called uh, Tame the Neighbors, which was a B-side of a seven-inch single. And Essential Logic was uh, a band, but uh, largely the, the project of Laura Logic, who was originally the saxophone player for X-Ray Specs, um, did Essential Logic had a, a solo single and a solo album and then disappeared for quite a long time uh, when she must have been, I'm guessing, 20 or 21 and didn't really didn't really pop up again for at least a decade and a half. She uh, uh, is a follower of uh, the Hare Krishna movement and um, just came back into music a, a bit different, uh, but it, you know, it's still her. And what I liked about her is when she was in X-Ray Spec, she must have been 15 or 16, and she, she played sax. And when she started her own band, Essential Logic, they just... You know, it just sounded like it was coming out of a kid still in a way and that um, it's really hard to tell what some of the songs are about, although they definitely give you some sense of what they might be about. I'd hate to I hate to actually pin that down. Um, And she just, you know, you got the feeling there were sad songs when she was sad and happy songs when they were sad. But she really had this penchant for avant-garde arrangements and loopy vocals and uh it's just really endearing but this song actually is an instrumental and it's oh, see, I'm, see i'm hearing the words i'm hearing the words saxophone and instrumental and i've got all manner of alarms flying no. around in my head. I, I mean and this, this song is a very kind of helter skelter post-punk part to it but there are parts of the song where they get this groove going and it's almost like one of those summertime hits from Sly and the Family Stone, like Hot Fun in the Summertime or Everyday People. And it has some real swing to it. And it's just such a carefree, unconscious sounding song. I really like it. I I don't know that anybody could record something like it past the age of 25, let's say. How close did she ever come to success? I mean, I mean, if, we, if we're doing success in terms yeah. of... There was she was on Rough Trade at the same time as the Raincoats and um bands like the pop group and and when quite a lot of things were happening on on Rough Trade. And uh her musical partner um was uh, a guy called Phil Legg, who who also worked with Stuart Moxham from Young Marble Giants. And he became a pretty big deal producer and he he mixed singles for Desiree, and I think he worked with Erasure. Uh and he has sort of had a dance sensibility, but he was a guitarist in the band. And then Laura herself, I, I think that she could have, if she'd made a third album, there was an Essential Logic album, a Laura Logic album. If she made a third one, that sort of could have probably cracked it because she she was kind of moving towards dancier music, um, still had a really strong artistic voice. But um, I can't say that she really she really was successful. She quit when she was so young. Uh, but Kill Rock Stars have released a double CD that collects most of what she did back then. And uh, she's probably a bigger name now than she was then. And I run into lots of really young people, like teenagers and people in their 20s, and especially girls. She's she's become a big musical role model for uh, women doing it their own way. And she's probably more popular now in a worldwide sense than she was before. Because in America, no one knew who she was. But now... Uh, she's an influence on things like Bikini Kill. Okay, so. fantastic. Well, I mean, I'm only going to say this once for people listening at home. Um, 
if you if you are on the aforementioned Mixcloud or our website, you are now going to hear some music. If not, you are going to regret your life choices, and you'll you'll hear us back in five seconds. Also, I'm now thinking we're going to call this um, episode "Doing It Their Own Way" with John Henderson. Thanks. Um, That's great. Um, so. One of my favorite artists is, is is a guy called Jeffrey Lewis, and he does a song called Cult Boyfriend about you know, the idea that um, for him, you know, most people would find him abhorrent, but for the one who really likes him, he's he's the shit, he's the bee's knees. But it lists all these sort of cult comics, cult records, cult movies, cult books, the kind that everyone goes, well, that's shit, but one person absolutely adores are we talking about this kind of artist? Would you say all of the people we're dealing with today have probably have some kind of cult status somewhere? Um, mm, I, would, I would say that there's <laughs> there's a couple that really haven't. Um, but yeah, to, to an extent, yeah, I would say. I mean, I, I don't think that they're... Let me put it this way. I think many of the artists on, on this list aren't artists that anyone would really hate particularly. Um, I just think most of them were kind of underexposed for one reason or another, or they were just doing things that had a very uh, inherently small audience. Um, did, so in that case, I mean, often like when you look back and obviously the show is about in general movements and scenes and genres, et cetera, et cetera. Often when there is a, a, a genre umbrella, yeah, and you look back, and there's well, these are the fifty songs that represented Britpop or punk or right or whatever. Um, but then people at the time go, "Oh no!" But if I look through my collection, there was this, and there was this, and there was this, and there was this. Sure. Did, did all of these artists fit in somewhere at the time, even if they didn't quite make? Or did some of them like these? Actually, no, they were in punk, or no, they were in blues, but they just didn't. Yeah, most of them you could put some sort of tag on. And there's, you know, there are a couple that are still really active, which we'll get to, uh, who became fairly well known through a genre that's utterly different than what the song I'm going to play for you represents now. So, I mean, some of these people, it's like they get older and they change their minds, but they, and they do change. I mean, their music changed a lot, but we'll talk about that. But um, I don't think that any of them are super representative, at least the songs that I'm playing, of anything at all. Actually, I would say, I would say to be perfectly honest, I think none of them are representative of the standard songs or artists you'd go for if you were talking about reggae or post-punk or soul. I think they're all a little bit weird for those genres in their way. Okay. 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 So like they're, they're on the outskirts of various, of various points. Um, who's next? Who's next is this fellow called Bobby Callender. And Good he's, name. yeah, he's well, two L's and ER, but, uh, but he, um, He's really obscure, and I found him by accident because I picked up a record that was or CD that was on Big Beat, which is part of the Ace Big Beat Kent, you know, label of families in in the UK, and uh, it just looked really intriguing. And he's uh, almost impossible to find anything out about him. I don't even know if he's alive or dead, but I suspect he's passed away for some time. But he's a an African American fellow from uh, the East Coast, and he during the hippie era wandered out to LA and. Uh, made a few records that are really kind of like taking the a certain mystical aspect of the hippie thing to a real extreme. And this song is this very dreamlike kind of uh, faux Indian uh, 
really lovely tune. And he's more or less just reciting this story of Rasha and Dara and their eternal love. And it's, it's just the most fantastic thing I've ever heard, I think. So and, are we talking, are we, are we, was this like proper flower power? Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and I don't think anybody really, I mean, I'd be hard pressed aside from say, well, I can't think of anyone actually that that really encompassed that as much as this guy did. You know, flowing white robes, and uh, from what I can tell, he was sort of a good-looking guy. And he went out there and he went to the studio, not to record this album. He had three albums, but I think the third one, or and he refused to speak uh, any language but French. This is out yeah. in California, and so and by by chance, the engineer of the record spoke French, so they managed to get the record done. But he was just a very es- esoteric character, and then uh, he made these three records. And as far as I can tell, just utterly disappeared. I, he might, he might have been, he might have died in 1972. He might be still hanging out. I, I can't tell. I don't even know if Bobby Calendar is his real name. Uh, but the song is so perfect and wonderful in a really unique way. I can't really tell you what it's about. It's a very sort of um, sonically erotic kind of song. It's really, it's really. I mean. If you were going to get high, it's a good one to get high to, I guess. But it's just a superb thing, and it doesn't sound like anything else, although it does evoke the flower power, power era pretty, pretty successfully. With a lot of these artists, is there an element, and I know they weren't deliberately outsiders, but them actually being outside of of the scenes like we not think about the genres but we think about the scenes and scenes can have multiple sounds if you think about elephant six in athens and you've got right. your uh, you've got your different bands who all love beast boys but they all channeled it in a di- totally different way but side of a motorbike yeah. they all channeled it in totally different ways um but so they were a scene, but they were multiple genres. Um, are these were these artists actually hanging around and working with other people, um, or were they just independent independent contractors? My brain wants to say, but that's because it's thirty seven degrees. Uh, or were they just doing their, Were they doing their own thing and being alone with it, or did some of these sort of flitter in and out? That's a really good question. I, w- I would say it's about half and half. I mean, there were a few that worked with major stars um, for many on many occasions and many different people. And then there were a few that just sort of have done their own thing on their own. Um, there's, there's one reggae artist I'll talk about coming up who, you know, in Jamaica, the, the, the number of studios and the number of musicians who recorded was quite small. So if you were a singer, invariably you were going to end up recording with, some of the bigger names in the reggae scene because the just it was a small pool of musicians. So there's that. But th- this next one, uh, which is kind of interesting, you brought that up now, is somebody who has worked with a crazy amount of really successful people and and really been admired by them, from what I can tell, uh, and has has a very sparse recording history and no real commercial success. Although he he might be. My favorite artist out there. Okay, well, okay, that's that's a that's a big up. So who who is this? This is this fellow called Timon Dog, and that's that's obviously not his real name. He used to go by just Timon, and the story that I heard from Joe Strummer actually was that he had been Jane Asher's stable boy when Jane Asher was going out with Paul McCartney. 
To be frank, anyway. yeah, my brain's trying to work this out. Also, because my memories of Jane Asher is also her off eighties TV in UK. Well, um, Jane Asher was Paul McCartney's serious girlfriend before Linda Eastman, I guess. And and time is from around Liverpool, and I, I guess Paul. Jane had a stable there. I'm going to draw from it what you will. And uh, he was a stable boy and he would be, and he was a, kind of in his teens and he would uh, write these songs. And somehow he got signed to the Pie label, which put out loads of, of British pop and rock and roll in the 60s. They're quite a big label. I don't know how many real hits they had, but they were very prolific. And he had a song that he wrote that they did. Um, on Pi with John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin as the backup musicians before they were in Led Zeppelin, mind you. Yeah, um, still. Yeah, and and the song is called, uh, which you're not going to hear today, but you can look it up. On <laughs> it's called The Bitter Thoughts of Little Jane. And it's this sort of twee, folky, very orchestrated, only could happen in 1966, 67 kind of song uh, about a you know, kids going about and doing what kids do, except for this one girl who just has uh, really heavy anger issues. And it's just sort of, I, I, know, I mean, I don't want to interpret someone else's song, but I think it's a song about a girl who's inevitably going to grow up to have a lot of issues and uh, seems a bit psychopathic already. Uh, it's a lovely tune in some way, but the message is really bizarre for the time. Anyway, so Timon did that. Uh, he recorded part of an album with Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and James Taylor during the Apple Records era. Didn't like what they were trying to do with it, which which he told me himself. He said they were trying to make me sound like Donovan. So he, uh, Joe Strummer told me anyway, that he swiped the tapes and just took off. Then he made another record on Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues label, another single. and uh, And then he drifted for years. And he was just playing in, in tube stations. Uh, he got, he was beaten up by the police at one point in London, sued them and got enough money to go and record an album, which he put out himself and he plays everything on strings, guitar, drums, you know, the whole lot. And uh, he, he met this kid uh, who wanted to play guitar, sort of taught him to play guitar and they hung out. And that ended up being Joe Strummer in the end. Uh, and he he was in he was the original songwriter for the One Hundred Oneers, Joe Strummer's band before the Clash. By the time they recorded, I think Timon had gone and, uh, as Joe Strummer said, walked to India. And um, he, I don't think they recorded any of his songs. And um, the next time he popped up was uh, he was in New York, and Mick Jones ran into him knew who he was and said, Hey, you know, we're recording here. Well, you know, come, come and see Joe. So they invited him to electric Ladyland studios and, uh, they were just setting up, starting to record. And the first song the clash recorded for Sandinista was actually a time and dog song, which time and dog plays violin and sings on. I mean, it's really him with them backing him up called lose the skin, which is the, the first song on side five of Sandinista. And, um, and then he sort of played with the Clash a bit after that. He, he's on a bunch of records playing piano. He recorded mostly Paul Jones. Um, sorry, mostly Joe Strummer and Timon recorded the last song the the original Clash ever recorded, which is called "Death on Death Is a Star," which is the last song on Sandinista. And Timon plays this beautiful piano part. And then he signed with um, Dick O'Dell's Y Records, which is a a post punk label that did a lot of um, kind of funky sort of post punk. 
pop group were on there for a while. Shriekback was on there. Um, uh, had a, a bunch of lesser bands uh, you might not know. Um, the Slits were on there for a while, and I think he was Dick Odell was managing the Slits. And the very last record he did on the label, I think the 29th release, was a Time and Dog record. Um, oh, wow. So, I mean, basically, he's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon yeah. of the music scene, if you go through yeah, and there's loads. I mean, there's loads more weird stories than that. And and is and it, but I would say that across uh, about f- what would it be about fifty five years now, he's really only released uh, one, two, three, four albums under his own name. And um, there's loads of stuff that hasn't come out. And uh, I, I, it's been one of my dreams to put out his records. And so. Uh, a few months ago, I managed to, f- he's, he has no social media presence, as you would expect. I managed to find out who his wife was and track her down and said, I'm going to be in London. Uh, you know, I'd, li- I'd like to visit you and talk to Timon if that's okay. And they live in, ha- they live in Hastings part of the time. So I took a train down to Hastings, uh, went to like the Royal Victorian Hotel, which is not as posh as it sounds anymore. <laughs> and um, we sat and we talked for a few hours. And at some point, Timon said, well, so, you know, John, what is it you want? And I just I just thought, well, here's my chance. I just said, I want to release your entire back catalog. And he said, oh, okay. And so that was that. And then a few weeks ago, my wife, Gabby, and I went to Granada because he, he – he, he and Joe both really, Joe Stormer loved Granada. And um, the drummer for the 101ers is this fellow who goes by the name Richard Dudansky. And he married Pomal of the original Slits drummer's sister, who's from Granada. And he lives in Granada. And he played in the 101ers. And he played with the Raincoats. And he played with Public Image for a while. And uh, Timon uses him as a drummer a lot. And, um, and a bunch of these Spanish guys who are really great. And he put on a very rare show. So we went down to see that. And we're just working out. Uh, what we're going to do and 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 when, but I think the first record is going to be a reissue of this the album. This is from called Battle of Wills, and it's um, this song may not convey it much, but the record is kind of half sort of Indian music and half folky things. And the thing with Timon is he's he plays everything, uh, but he, I'm not on this record. But but he's a violinist uh, by and large. He plays guitar, plays piano, but uh, his voice seems to have taken on some of the characteristics of a violin, which he plays, he plays and sings at the same time. And you'll hear it in this, although even this isn't as extreme as it could be, but this is called legal thief. And, and uh, as the chorus goes, you know, everything is stolen, you know, just make sure you're a legal thief. Like there's some things you can just take and there's some things you have to buy, but really you're taking it from, mother nature or the earth or what have you. And it's sort of a beautiful song and a message song. And a lot of his songs are like that, but it's just a little bit odd. I mean, you, you know, I don't think you can say you've heard anything quite like it. And, and really this is a bit on the tamer side for, for him. So have a go. The last two tracks um there's been elements of well the last two artists there's definitely been elements of hippie folk um and sort yeah. of indian influences etc etc that's just um, kind of a coincidence oh okay. really? well that's what i'm gonna that's what i'm gonna ask you okay, I mean, are, are, are we moving down that route i mean also i mean are, i mean i'm guessing outsiders don't all necessarily have to come from the same 
play thought. So, I mean, we've got people who were either in the music industry, yeah. the first one who, who then disappeared and came back. Uh, the last one was this sort of, what's that? What's that movie? Um, Zelig? Is it Zelig? Yeah, Zelig, yeah. yeah the last one was some kind of mus- musical Zelig who was yeah. a sort of fingers in all the pies. Yeah. Um, some hippie dude who, who who would like to teach the world to sing in, in French. Um, where would we... Uh, is is there is there a natural setting for these types of people? I.e., when there are people, when there's a music scene in England, you know, uh, and there's the Beatles, and then there's like punk coming up. Do they sort of gravitate towards, or when there's the hippie movement, do they gravitate towards, or is there anybody that came from? Any, is are there people who came from truly different places? That's a really good question, though, because uh, I think there are periods in in music like the hippie era uh, or like punk and post-punk where all of a sudden uh, things kind of fall apart and you can do what you want for a bit, you know, before it gets uh, structured into something saleable, like, you know, commercial new wave or, or. Oh, so like, so, so even before we continue, so we're talking about sort of the cusp of the beginning, the, 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 as it gets to the peak or even before as it, of, of a scene. So the beginning of punk, maybe the beginning of hippie, the beginning of um, post-punk before the record companies put it into and sell it. Yeah, there is there is this space for people to come in and just get some space in the studio and, and do their own thing. I think you know traditionally, of course, now you know you don't need that space so much because you can do that at home, and a lot of people are. And to, and I wonder if that's a bit of a loss in that. Um, Back then, you had to at least be somewhat connected to some aspect of the music industry to go into a studio or to afford it or to have somebody put your records out. And now you can do it in your bedroom and post it on you, you know, YouTube or uh, Bandcamp or anything like that. And so I wonder about the development of some of these artists. Although looking at the list, I see that most of them have... have with a couple of exceptions, have very erratic uh, histories when it comes to releasing records on a on a kind of a normal basis, you know, on regular spaces between them. What's the word? Oh, sorry. That was, I think that was, my brain was saying, did he just say erotic? What's an ero- erratic? Erratic. That was me. Sorry, yeah. That's on me. That's on me. Uh, <laughs> okay, so so who's next? And and. In- and, and looking at, I, mean, I did some cursory research earlier on, which I'm sort of confirming with you as we go along. And next artist comes from well, a totally different background, right? Yeah, the next artist uh, was, I, I guess, you know, a very, very, very late period Weimar era German uh, cabaret singer. And she must have been yeah, a teenager at the time. And uh, I, I, I believe she was Jewish. And at some point, her family wisely decided to flee uh, the oncoming Nazi, you know, domination of the country. And uh, however it happened, she ended up in Ireland. Um, I don't know if she performed or anything. Quite a number of years went by. And and eventually, and, and interestingly enough, because there is a connection here with the punk and post-punk thing. So it was a, a bunch of people involved with the radiators from space um, it, it, who were a really early Irish punk band. And one of the main guys whose name escapes me now, really, oh, Phil Chevron, uh, later joined the Pogues. And he, he, got, he came across her uh, and somehow got her signed to Demon Records when Demon was still really closely aligned with the Elvis Costello camp. 
and um, got her to perform these songs which uh, she'd written that were very much in the 1930s Weimar cabaret sense. And they're really poetic and strange and very, very allegorical. She still could really sing. And actually, anybody that hears this that's interested in it, aside from being an entire genre of music that's fantastic that really people don't know much about anymore, there's a clip. If you type in, in English, you would pronounce her name Agnes Burnell, B-E-R-N-E-L-L-E. And there's a clip on YouTube of her on television with uh, three Mustafas, three, if you know them, uh, Lou Edmonds, who's now a Mekon, is in that band. And with these these three guys who are also on uh, Ace Records, I believe. And they did kind of like ethnic music, uh, but sort of with a sense of humor to it. Uh, and Elvis Costello. And they have her perform a song and they play along. And they're obviously deeply in admiration of, of just her talent and and being being the last living relic of that era musically and uh this song is called chansonnette and um little song and i i couldn't even begin to tell you really what it's about but it's really compelling and i I just really like it and the album that it's from is called father's lying dead on the ironing board (laughs) father's lying dead on the ironing board and which is a line from one of the songs, maybe this song, I can't remember, but it's a great song. It's not very long. And if you like this kind of thing, that's uh, something worth trying to find, but it's out of print, sadly. One thing I'm starting to notice as we progress is that all of these, I'm going to use the word outsiders just because I need a word. All of these outsiders seem to have a story. Yeah. A lot of very famous, uh, big, successful musicians, some of them do, some of them don't. A lot of them did, they just got into a band, and then that band became successful. And their life may have been interesting because they were in that band, but there wasn't, there wasn't this sort of narrative before. A lot of these people are either wandering off to India or strolling into Californian hippie land singing in, singing in French or coming out of the Weimar Republic to meet a bunch of Irish punks um there's there, there's tales and narrative here um why do you think that particularly lends itself to this kind of outsider status or is the fact that they are not established musicians does that give space in their life for other things to happen apart from get into band well a couple i mean i would say that you know most of these are established musicians in some sense but i think what it really is is people have a natural inclination uh to want to please other people so if you if you're an artist and you go in and you you've got a song and you play it let's say to a label uh and they say oh you know that's pretty good we could record that and you know maybe it would do well but you know maybe you need to pep up the chorus a little bit or this or that um you know if it doesn't sound too much of a burden, an artist that wants to be popular and successful or, or just get their records out, but say, oh, you know, that's not much of a compromise and that sounds reasonable enough. I don't have anything against it. And they do it. The problem with that for many artists is that that's a never ending process. And after three albums, you're just something wholly different than what you started out being. And in my experience, anyway, that's usually around the point when the artists wake up and think, what the heck happened? You know? And I think that most of these people, they just aren't that bothered to, 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 I don't want to say to try because most of them put a lot of effort into what they do, but I think that they're just kind of happy doing what they're doing and they've got something to say. Maybe they've never had the chance to compromise. I don't know. 
Some of them. Can we use the word here? I, I, I hate when people use this phrase, but it does sound like for some of them it would have been appropriate. Selling out. It does feel like for a lot of these people, doing what you just said, maybe changing their stuff to be more successful, would be selling out, I guess. A couple of them coming up have been really successful doing what they're doing. Uh, a few like time and dog who's really a lovely guy but you know he's he's he must have had loads of opportunities to sell out i mean he's recording with you know two of the beatles and james taylor for apple and he you know he walks out with the tapes because he thought they were trying to make him sound too sickly sweet and commercial so you know he he's and he's he's an older fellow now and he has a lot of principles so he'd be a good example of that some of them i don't think they really had a chance to enter into it some of them were ahead of their time and so by the time that might have happened, they were kind of an old story, maybe. Um, I just think that, and but I mean, I've met, I'm going to go down the list here real quickly. One, two, three, four, five, six of them I've met at least. Um, and to a person, they've been really, fin- well, five I've met and one I've, I've talked to on the phone for oh, quite a bit. And they're really lovely people, all of them. I mean, they're not difficult or hard to deal with uh, or anything like that. Um, I mean, some of them are just the nicest people I know almost. So I don't I don't think so. I think they just do what they do. And it's maybe just a little too odd to be offered the opportunity to sell out. And maybe some of them wouldn't. Maybe some of them, some of them would have. Um, I don't know. I work with a lot of artists now that have been around long enough that they just like what they're doing. And even if they thought they could sell out, they, I don't think they would want to do it because that's eh, just a whole other mess. You know? <laughs> um, okay. Well, who's next? And, and what's their story? I'm expecting stories from everybody. No, they all seem well, to have this amazing story. tale. Who's next is this uh, woman, Margarita, who's a, a Jamaican uh, a dancer. I think an exotic dancer, as they used to be called back then, of Lebanese origin. Uh, Margarita Mafoud was her name. And, uh, she was quite a beautiful woman, and she had been involved with a lot of musicians back. This would have been the late ska, early rock steady era, so kind of the mid-60s, early to mid-60s. And um, she fell in love with Don Drummond, who's really one of the greatest musicians in reggae, a horn player. Um, he was so good, in fact, that Downbeat, the American jazz magazine back then, listed him as like the, I think that was like the best trombonist in, you know, in the world. And this was when nobody was listening to Jamaican music. So, I mean, that was a big barrier to overcome. Anyway, they fell in love and, and, uh, Don Drummond had, um, a history of mental issues and, um, sometimes wouldn't show up for gigs, uh, really didn't seem to ever rehearse, but he could just pick up a horn and play something, you know, out of his head like magic. Um, and he just had that weird, crazy ability. Um, and apparently he would get a bit paranoid. and was really jealous. And, uh, one day he, uh, killed Margarita and, um, no one really knows the story, uh, because shortly thereafter he was put into psychiatric, psychiatric hospital and he didn't live long after that. Um, the, the first story I ever heard was that he had been, <laughs> this is just as crazy sounding as I could come up with, although I didn't come up with it, is that he had been smoking dried lizard skin and had a psychotic episode. Um, 
I've, I've never smoked dried lizard skin myself, so I can't vouch for its um, psychoactive properties. But uh, I think probably what happened really was that he just was in some sort of paranoid, jealous state and lost control. And apparently she was kind of a an argumentative person herself. Anyway, it's a tragic story. But what's interesting about her was that she only ever recorded this one song. That's her entire discography. Just once, like, as in the song our listeners are about to listen to is heard, the only... You will have heard her entire recorded output. Uh, the B-side was somebody else. It was a single. So she can't really sing. Um, and of course, back then, this was all live. There were no, no dubbing at all. It was probably recorded live to a two-track, if not a mono you know, tape. Um, and the, the, the band is just brilliant and she is so perfect for this song. I can't even begin to describe. It just brings joy to my heart every time I hear it. Um, but it's really tragic since it's an ode to the man who killed her shortly thereafter. Um, if I, I mean, if I think back through, I don't know, music I like or music I'm aware of, you do get these characters that turn up that for some reason either don't make it or become highly lauded by everybody and don't make it or just turn up quite a lot and disappear or or turn up and have, and keep going, but nobody seems to know they're still going. I mean, I can think of people like Daniel Johnson, yeah. uh, who died like a couple of years ago, or even other people like um, Karen Dalton, who... Again, I guess, like a bit of a Nick Drake, seemed to be bigger. Oh, now. yeah, very definitely. Yeah. Karen, Karen was one of those people who, um, you know, just didn't, like Fred Neal, who, whom she played with quite a lot, it was kind of a, a bit like the, um, he's from the Deep South originally, but, but you know, they didn't want to record. A lot of the best Karen Dalton stuff is stuff that people managed to kind of convinced her to record like in her flat in Greenwich village, you know, in 1963 or something. And it's a shame because she really only made two albums and the second one was a bit overdone, but the first one's the most perfect record ever made almost. Oh, it's, oh, it's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, it's like pe- people like this, they, they're, they're there or they're not there. Some people love them. Some people wave a record in front of you and go, Oh my God, have you heard this? I mean, it's interesting that you said Greenwich village. That's exactly the sort of place I'd expect these type, these, these outsiders, these people who skirt the outs, skirting the outskirts with John Henderson. There we go. That's the title. Who skirt the outskirts? Um, and then, well, obviously, we've had these like the tragic story you 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 you, you just told us with, with the last one, and then tales from the Weimar Republic. Um, I don't know where we're going next. I've, I've stopped looking at the track list because I want to be surprised. Um, John, where are you taking me? I'm taking you to Roy Shirley, who um, is also Jamaican. Uh, well, he actually passed away a few years ago. He's Jamaican. And Roy Shirley was just uh, like Lee Perry is probably, you know, one of the better known names in reggae. But he's kind of always, an out- I mean, people like him because his sensibilities were almost avant-garde um, in a lot of ways. Roy Shirley's kind of the opposite. He was really, uh, in Jamaica, they would say country you know, for, for Jamaican. He was really raw, the, the equivalent of sort of a deep Southern sort of sound, you know, in soul music, let's say, but in reggae, he had a kind of a raggedy voice and, um, but he really put on a show. Uh, he would dress in these, you know, red, gold, and green suits and 
you know, take off a cape like James Brown and do these kinds of things. And he'd be on his knees, you know, crying into the microphone and all this kind of stuff. And he, um, his voice is very strange uh, and his lyrics occasionally approach the avant-garde and he was playing live with musicians in the studio and he would obviously very unconsciously speed up. So a lot of his songs are going about twice as fast at the end as they are at the beginning. And um, the one thing he's kind of known for, if you're a big reggae fan, is he has a song called Hold Them, which is the one that we're going to play, actually. And uh, it's kind of regarded as the first Rocksteady song, which when Rocksteady came about after Ska, when... The summer of 1966 was so incredibly hot in Jamaica that nobody wanted to dance the ska anymore. It was just too uh, up-tempo, uh, you know, for hot, for heavy music. So they slowed down the tempo quite a lot. For the most part, the horns kind of disappeared. And uh, it was just this clunky, weird proto-form of reggae. Reggae came out of... of, of uh, of this pretty, pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious uh, once they slowed it down and got a little more Rasta oriented, but, but Rocksteady was just, um, just really sl- a slowed down version of, of ska without all the in- instrumentation. And um, this was maybe the first song that sort of fits into that. And it's just, I, he, he's an odd guy, Roy Shirley. Uh, he moved to London at some point and um I contacted him years ago to see if he'd ever make a record again. And he said, yeah, and we were writing. And then like a week later, he died. So, so but I'm a big fan of his. And there are a couple of compilations of his stuff. And it's, it's, it's pretty much to a song perfect, if you like this kind of thing. Uh, but, um, but this song is, 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 is the best, I think. It's the most famous. Uh, uh, Hold Them, it's called, and it's just great. So there seems to be elements um, as we're going through these um, uh, of people who skirt the outskirts and also waifs and strays, I guess. Um, where would, where do you put this artist in? I, mean, I thought I was being pretty smart when I came up with this, the idea of this show. I've got movement, scenes, genres. Everything fits either a movement, a scene, or a genre. And today I'm kind of realizing it doesn't. Yeah. And that there's, there's falling through the gaps <laughs> and people that just – go their own direction, uh, skirt around the outskirts of a movement, slip into a genre and out of a genre. And, you know, maybe this this need of, I guess, music journalism to try and compartmentalize stuff is it's kind of difficult. I mean, you've got a, you've got a label um, and you said, okay, you said you're just putting stuff out that you like, but is there a thread? Is it, I mean, would you say any of your artists fit what we're talking about today? Do they all do their own thing? Um, do, has any of them sold out? What's happening in the tiny global world? I think, um, I mean, that's a good question. Obviously, it's stuff that I like, but it's also stuff that um, that I like that I think deserves some kind of chance that it isn't getting or, or hasn't gotten. Or, I mean, to be really blunt, you know, a, a bunch of it's just stuff I really love and I'd just really be happy to put out their records because I'm a big fan. But for me, the 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 most, it's not what I base, what I listen on all the time or anything necessarily, but the most interesting aspect of music that no one talks about is the aspect of irreducibility, which is 
you know, uh, you've got a band like, let's say, the Hollies. And, you know, great band, lots of hits, you know, well-remembered. Not Beatles level, of course, but, you know, what were they? Well, they started out doing, you know, our rock and roll covers and, and uh, R&B covers, and they got to be... Uh, they got to the point where they had a few great songwriters in the band and they came up with stuff that was Beatlesque. And then they kind of got a little more hippie-ish as that thing started to happen. And they're, you know, an undeniably great band with lots of great records. And I'm, I'm a fan, so don't get me wrong. But um, one of the things that I'm, that I'm not playing during this, this thing that would have fit in really nicely would have been one of those late 60s records from Nina Simone when she was sort of getting really strange and really political and a little bit maybe having some mental issues. And if I were going to play one of her songs, I would have played probably 22nd Century, which is a song written by this Bahamaian singer-songwriter called Exuma about like just life in the 22nd century. Only it's a very surreal song. And it it's it's with Nina Simone doing it, it takes on this characteristic of in a really weird way, maybe being kind of a hopeful song for where uh, black people may be at that point in time, which would be a much better place than they were when she was singing it, uh, particularly you know in America. And uh, it's just such a strange song. And, and for somebody who started off doing kind of cocktail jazz and these love songs and, and dance around other things, it was a very strange move to make when she was on RCA, the biggest label she was on. And they were, you know, the record, that that was on bombed. Uh, and I just thought, and I, and, and this really goes back to the conversation I had with Joe Strummer about time and dog, where I said, what I love about time and dog is he's like Nina Simone. And he immediately knew what I was saying. He's like, yeah, no matter what they do, you know, it's them. And it's not because of their voice and it's not because of their musical style. It's just that somehow their music retains some really individualistic sensibility even if Nina Simone's doing, you know, like a, a a version of a song by written by the Association or something, I mean, it's still just like you can never remove the Nina Simone element from it. She just adds that to it. Time and Dog adds that to it, and most of these artists have that in some way, shape, or form. I mean, they just it's just in there. They haven't eradicated it, or they can't eradicate it. I don't want to make any, you know, presumptions. But uh, I think that that's a really interesting thing. And when I kind of thought about that idea to myself one day, I thought, wow, that really kind of joins together much of what I like across any genre. And I think that there are really, really, really commercial genres full of hit songs where that's still kind of true in a way. Um, and occasionally I hear a song on, a radio, on the radio that's a big hit. And I just think, Oh, that still kind of has that quality. And by some miracle, it managed to survive the machinations of a music industry that really would like to eliminate that. I thought that about, um, who's the guy that does happy? Oh, um, Pharrell. Yeah, that, and, and, and I thought that about, and I love the, that first big Lily Allen hit. Um, but you do get, you do get these, comp- I think now touching upon what you talked about earlier on, how a lot of artists can do their bedroom. They do their stuff in the bedroom yeah. and then they sort of upload it and release it. And often it's the first one or two tracks yeah. that, that make them big. Yeah. And that's very idiosyncratic. And then later on, they're like, Oh, now I've got to do other stuff. And they, they end up being, I don't want to say normal musician, but, you know, they go down a sort of more uh, normal route. Um, but there's lots of these sort of bedroom classics. And um, there, there was a number one um, 
oh, in the 90s in the UK. I think the track was white, called White Town, or the band was called White Town. It was just... Came out of nowhere. Never heard of the artist ever again. But it was one of those, made it in my bedroom. You know, that's what I did. Um, and also, when we, when we had an episode about 80s pop, and a lot of the things about 80s pop is, I was listening to, be listening to stuff going, this would never be successful now. How, how would you have a song about this at the top of the charts? Yeah. Or a song this this weird as, you blinded me with science yeah. in the top <laughs> in the top 10, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, just, 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 just batshit crazy stuff. Um, okay, okay. We're getting off track. We almost spent time, we almost spent so much time talking about Nina Simone. I felt we had to put her in. However, we've got one from your stable, Next. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, this is this is Dave Callahan, and there there are really only two artists on the label that uh, submitted something to me without me, you know, looking for it that I listened to, and I just thought, oh wow, this this is fantastic, and I've got to do it. And and oddly enough, they're both called David. The other one's uh, David Westlake, who was in a band called The Servants, um, and. Uh, uh, Luke Haynes from from the Auteurs and stuff was originally a guitarist in the in the Servants, and Luke Haynes plays on the record that I'm doing with David Westlake and David Callahan, and they both came out of uh, for for most people uh, they're best known for coming out of that C86 scene. They were both on the the enemy C86 cassette with their bands, uh, David Callahan with the Wolfhounds and um, David Westlake with with uh, the Servants, and. The other interesting thing is both of them said that they, they didn't take it very seriously when they were asked to be on that cassette. So they submitted what they considered to be their most throwaway songs. And um, David Westlake's going to be a professor, but David Callahan has, has pr- pretty much continually recorded and, and done things. And what's amazing about him, um, first of all, the Wolfhands, I think, were one of the better, poppier bands on that compilation, uh, despite including... A lesser song and the wolfhounds had a, a bit of success um maybe some trouble with labels and stuff and then he started a uh, moonshake who were on two pure back when two pure had the faith healers and stereo lab and a bunch of things like that and moonshake did fairly well uh, at least i was living in america at the time uh, so in america they did pretty well and it was entirely different from the wolfhounds um, and this new new record is the second of two. I've done one by him already called English Primitive One. This is from the forthcoming English Primitive Two, and um, probably not supposed to be playing it, but it's such a great song, and it's really is this an exclusive? This is an exclusive. Yeah. Wait, am I gonna? Are you gonna send me an email afterwards? Going, don't play this episode. No, from I, the I mean, look, David is David's one of these guys where he's just. He does his thing and he does it brilliantly. You know, he's a really, really good musician. He's a really interesting guy. He, he, as best as I can tell, he, he, he hasn't come to Valencia to visit yet, which is where I live. Uh, but he's here quite a lot because he's a bird watcher and he writes about birds. He's like an ornithology journalist, which is the most brilliant profession you can probably have aside from incredibly wealthy rock star but uh, now so he does that and he does these songs and he came up with this record i i assume the origins of it were during the covid era uh and it's largely recorded with him uh, and a couple of other people including darren garrett who's been a drummer for both the nightingales and the fall uh and uh and darren's a great drummer he's he's on this record and it's kind of i mean again it, it i don't want people to think this is 
all they listen to, but it has a definite Indian element to it. It's a very sort of droney, rhythmic, weird song. Uh, but unlike Moonshake, which you could have applied some of those adjectives to, uh, and I just love it. I think it's really just different and cool and it grows on you. And it's really, this is the whole album's brilliant. And uh, this is called The Invisible Man. So ignoring the stuff, the bands we're doing today, and you briefly touched upon maybe Nina Simone would be a good example. Who would you cite as the biggest, the most successful people who did their own thing? I mean, essentially, that's what we're doing today is do, doing their own thing. Yeah. I'm just trying to work work out the title as we go through the episode. Who would you cite as, as people who just did it their own way and properly just ignored conventions, turned to pull out what they wanted and, and just became huge? It kind of depends on where you draw the line. I mean, I, I mentioned Nina Simone because I think that's very true with her. And she's also an artist who got... Uh, I mean, she didn't record much for the last couple of decades of her life, but she got sort of stranger as she went on, which I love, you know, even though she was already a household name. I probably, if I had to answer that question, and some people might take exception to this, but I would say maybe Dylan, Bob Dylan. Okay. You know, he was a weird singer and he was doing weird things and he he pushed it quite a lot. And he, he probably could have uh, become kind of like, some good timey old folk dude who just runs through the hits. But I've seen Bob Dylan play a couple of times and once was so brilliant. I can't describe it. The other one was for sure the worst show I've ever seen in my life. And he was doing largely the same songs with the same band, you know? I've seen spiritualized about eight, nine times. And I always wonder why I go and see them because each show will have moments. I think this is one of the greatest moments yeah. I've ever seen live by any band. And 10 minutes later, I kind of want to leave. Yeah. And then five minutes after that, I think this is amazing again. Um, I went to all tomorrow's parties once. My wife and I went to all tomorrow's parties once and spiritualized were playing on the Sunday. And for those that don't know, it's one of those festivals set in like an old English holiday camp, like a Butlin's holiday camp. And um, it was a Sunday afternoon. We were walking through, past the main stage and spiritualized were doing a sound check. And it, we sat down and it was five songs and it was absolutely sublime and perfect. Amazing. They played ladies and gentlemen were floating into space. I've got goosebumps thinking about it. And then later on, it was the standard two hours of back to the crowd, 10 minute feedback, um, just tedium. And I just don't understand how one band can hit my buttons so much on one side and then the other side just made me want, made me just want to walk out. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. That's actually, um, that's actually a great recommendation for them though, really, because I think if you're, I, I don't want to slag any band really, but I mean, let me think of like, you know, a really big band like U2, let's say, you know, they have what they do on stage and in the studio down to an absolute science. And I'm not, and I don't want, you know, I don't want to disparage them or, or their fans or anything like that. But I mean, you know, clearly they go into the studio and they sort of are, have calculated out what they need to do to make that record successful and so on and so forth. It's not as if sometimes it is with, you know, a Diamond Dog or a Dave Callahan or a Nina Simone where they let the muse come to them and they just kind of ride that wave, you know? And so 
if a band like if a band as big as spiritualized go in there and sometimes they're just making your endorphins dance and other times you know it's just lucky you don't have a knife to stab yourself with <laughs> I, I i have to assume that they're kind of letting the muse dictate what's going to happen that day and sometimes it's out of this world and sometimes I think there's always a. I always have this fear. I, I mean, some people say they're scared of clowns or scared yeah. of piranhas. piranhas. I'm scared of something I don't really have an experience of. But I'm scared of American jam bands. Oh, well, yeah. The whole Grateful, the whole Grateful Dead. Let's keep going, hacky sack. Ten, ten hours. Of, you know, it's also why I don't like Can. I, I tried Can, the band Can. I kind of like Can. Yeah, I mean, I could do with more of their songs being edited, <laughs> edited down to three minutes. But you're dead right about it. Oh, you, sh- you should have come on the Can episode. Everyone hated me because I was like, I half liked Hallelujah, yeah. and then I didn't like Hallelujah, and it was still going on. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a weird thing because I think that what was brilliant about Can was that they – developed a sonic palette that was really different. They didn't just ride some groovy, hippie, folky blues rock thing to, you know, tomorrow. And I th- I'm totally in agreement with, with, uh, with, with jam bands. Somebody at Warner Brothers, I was talking to them about a band and they gave me this complete set of like 30 double CDs of the first, you know, 15 Grateful Dead records. And I thought, you know, honestly, I've never really sat down and listened to the Grateful Dead. I worked in a record shop when that 1987 album came out that had Touch of Grey on it, and I hated it. But I thought, I don't know what they were like in 1968. You know, I mean, I really had no idea. And so I, I, I sat down for about three days, you know, just while I was doing other stuff and listened to all of them. And I will say the first CD had like... Th- when they were still like the warlocks, it had like three pretty okay garage songs on it. And after that, oh my God, I couldn't handle it. <laughs> okay, let's pull this back. Let's pull this back. Um, so earlier on, we had uh, Time and Dog. Yeah. And next on the list, next on the list, we've got it Swamp Dog. Swamp Dog is his, his little brother. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> totally joking. Swamp Dog. Uh, is this guy from from the southern you know the southern part of the United States? Uh, started out as a, a doo wop singer. He's kind of a little guy, and he has a very odd voice. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a squeaky voice, um, and really, I think it was always going to be pretty hard for him to make it uh, as a star on his own. But he is an incredible songwriter. Really brilliant arranger and absolutely this free thinking guy. Like he just has, I don't think there's just really any borders to where his head goes. And he, um, he worked with lots of, of big soul artists, uh, including Aretha Franklin. You know, I think he, he recorded Aretha Franklin at one point and, you know, he's, he's made a good living. Um, but his name is he, as a doo-wop artist, he was little Jerry Williams. And then he was Jerry Williams and he, he was an entrepreneur and he had these labels and I don't know how well that stuff sold, but little to none of it crossed over outside of like really small soul circles. Uh, and then in the sixties, he adopted this persona of swamp dog and swamp dog was kind of going to tell it like it was, uh, in this, in his swamps sort of Southern squeaky voice. and. If you want to get some sense of who he is from a picture, look up his album, Swamp Dog, Dog with Two two G's. And he has an album called Rat, like Rat On, but it's spelled Rat, A-R-T, I'm sorry, R-A-T, On. And it's him in this sort of 
what now you'd think was like a 19 late 60s early 70s pimp sort of like outfit on and he's riding a giant white rat um, and while you're doing this i'm obviously having to google, yeah, this to google it and and it's it's a hilarious cover it's i've seen it in books of like the best record covers ever and the the worst record what ever. the fuck yeah, exactly. is that yeah. and it's so great because like you know it's just it's called rat on you know when this is back when right on was like a big expression and he's he's writing writing this white rat it's a, like i mean i can't say photoshop but it's obviously a photo collage of him on this white rat and which looks like about the size of a cow and but you know if and it's kind of funny and it's sort of low budget, you know, and there were a lot of soul records that like people were doing themselves back then, like he did. But the beauty of it is that if you look about it and you listen to the record, it's a little bit of like a racial metaphor for he's 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 like taking charge of the white rat, you know. What I mean, and I never ta- I talked to him about it or anything, but that's that's kind of what I get out of it. But he he wrote really great songs that have been covered by lots and lots of people um, and had big like country hits. He's written songs for country stars and he's written songs that were covered in, you know, Jamaica and he's uh, Jimmy Cliff covered one of his songs, for instance, and he's written soul songs that have been done by people, but I don't think they, they ever really match his own recordings of them. And he's still recording. He's got to be around 80. And one of his last records, uh, last singles is um, called uh, I'm lonely by Swamp Dog. And he makes really, the whole album that it's on makes really liberal use of auto-tune, which is, you know, I know, it's the worst thing ever, right? And he, he it's auto-tuned, but I tell you what, it so works on this record that you want, I know you won't believe me till you listen to it, but go and look up I'm Lonely, or Lonely, maybe it's called, by Swamp Dog. And it's the greatest song and the greatest video. And, and he's just this sort of like schlubby, you know, black guy with this like, you know, sweatshirt watching TV, kind of wondering why this this woman who's who's very attractive isn't uh, isn't calling him back. And she's just ignoring him through the whole video because he's lonely. And it's it's really sort of self-deprecatingly pathetic, but it's great. And Swamp Dog did a lot of stuff like that. I don't know if you know Bobby Goldsboro. He was a big hit singer in America in the 60s and his songs were really huge um one was called watching scotty grow about watching your little boy grow up and it's it's you couldn't play it today because it sort of has um, i mean unintentionally for sure but it's a little pervy sounding watching scotty grow and and he had he had a bunch of uh i'm trying to think of what other hits he had a ton of hits in america and they were really corny oh one called um Oh, there's one called Honey, Honey by Bobby Goldsboro. And Honey is about him remembering his wife who's just passed away. And he's talking about, it's the corniest song ever. It's so trite and emotional. And he's remembering this tree that she planted and it's become a bigger tree. And he's remembering just these goofy little things that she didn't really understand. And and it's just like so awful. And I'm being honest here. Every time I hear it, I break into tears. It just works. It's like it shouldn't work at all. And so many of us, he's, he's the master of that kind of thing. And he wrote this song, and it's called The World Beyond. And if you hear Bobby Goldsboro's version of it, it's got to be the worst song ever ever recorded. I mean, it's so bad. He was very hit or miss, I should say. And it's it's about a guy and his son 
living in a cave after you know the presumed nuclear holocaust and the kid is just asking his dad hey dad tell me again the story of what a tree used to be you know and what was a car and like and it just goes on and on and on like that and it's awful and then swamp dog covers it which is what we're about to hear and it's amazing same lyrics same most basic tune but man he just makes it work it's it's it, instead of being really really just pathetic and cheesy it's really sort of avant-garde touching it's fantastic and swan and this is the master mastery of swamp dog he does stuff like that and i have to tell you my my little swamp dog story which is uh when i was living in austin before i moved to europe i saw that he was playing at this club that was like half a block away from where i lived and i was so excited and then i saw that he was signing uh, records at this record store called antones it's kind of a roots roots rock roots soul record store and he went there and there were about five people there. And so I just ended up sitting down and talking to him. And he had this guy opening for him that evening called Bobby Patterson, who, if you're a soul fan, is a pretty big name in soul or was in the 60s. Pretty legendary guy, I think, from Texas. And um, and Swamp's like, hey, you know, we're sitting here to Swamp Dog. You know, I mean, immediately, like, we're pals. I just totally got him. He totally got me. I really, really loved the guy right away. And he was like, why don't, you know, why don't you interview me? And I'm like, for what? And he's just like, I don't know, just interview me. So I just started kind of bullshitting with him. And I said, well, I guess the first question I have for you is like, it's interesting that you're playing tonight with Bobby Patterson, given your decades long bitter fuse feud that has sometimes come to blows and violence. And he just goes, yeah, I hate that motherfucker so much. I can't even begin to tell you. And like, they put him on the bill. I was so fucking angry. And he's totally, I'm making this up and he's making it up. I mean, there's no truth to that at all. Right. And he's just running with it and I'm laughing and he's laughing. And there's a bunch of people standing around, you know, just listening to this kind of going, wow, I had no idea that there was this feud between Bobby Patterson and Swamp Dog. And so, you know, we I do this for like half an hour. I do this unrecorded avant-garde pointless interview and then i go and then i get up and i go to this restaurant like an hour later called the green mesquite this barbecue place to pick up some barbecue before the show to have dinner because i didn't have time to cook anything and i and i and i'm in there and then in walks in walks swamp dog right it's like 10 miles away from where i where i was in walks swamp dog and he's and he comes up to me he goes John, you following me? And I'm like, I was here before you. How could I be following you? And he's like, oh, yeah. And then we ended up just sitting and having barbecue before the show. And then I went to the show and he he saw me and he, he you know, before the show. And he's like, oh, you know, John, come backstage. And he, um, we were just talking and this woman comes up to us and she really looks like she's going to shoot Swamp Dog, right? And he's kind of freaked out. I'm really freaked out. And she just goes... All right, before I start punching you, I want to know what the hell you got wrong with Bobby Patterson. And and, and I'm just like, oh man, I probably shouldn't have gone there. And um, and he's just like, I don't got nothing wrong with Pe- Bobby. And he, she's like, I was standing right behind you, and you're dissing him and telling him, telling this white guy why you want to kick his butt. <laughs> And all this stuff. And Swamp Dog and I are laugh, laughing so hard and she got upset and walked away. And then Bobby Patterson walks in and he just starts laughing because he knew it was a joke too. God bless him. Anyway, this is The World Beyond by Swamp Dog. And if it makes you want to run out and get records, I would start with uh, Rat On. That's a really good one to start with. And there's, um, yeah, that's probably the best one, but he's great. 
I said we've done we've done reggae, we've done whatever Swamp Dog is, um, we've done <laughs> the, the Swamp Dog thing. I can't remember what it was, but I remember being at a festival and Stuart Lee was on stage, and one of his routines was about an album cover, and it was the entire routine was about the song titles and the album cover, and just looking at that Swamp Dog picture just flashed back to it. So we've had all these different, all these sort of different genres. Um, I thought there'd be a bit more rock and punk outsiders, I guess. Um, but that's also because like when you sent me this sort of list, I did, or the, even the name of it, I genuinely didn't know where, where, what route we were going to take. Um, I'm conscious of time because we talked a lot about Swamp Dog. So let's fly through this bit. Um, who's next? Who's next is Mark Beer. And Mark Beer is a guy who self-released his own singles uh, starting in about 1978. I have, I have a, I think it's a 1978 zigzag independent record label guide, which was a catalog of all the indie records coming out then. And this was only, a, if you took out the ads, uh, was maybe six pages long. Rough Trades, you know, they listed by label. Rough Trades in there and they only had like maybe two singles out. And Mark Beer's in there with a, a few different singles. He's, he was probably not the first guy after punk to do his stuff totally DIY, but he was one of the first. And I think one of the most original, uh, he released a series of kind of minimal, very minimalist, somewhat electronic kids since, but he could play songs and stuff. And he worked sometimes with members of a band called metabolist who were running in the same circles as this heat at the time. And they were just these weird little experimental seven inch records. And then, um, he signed to, to Rough Trade, put out a single, and then it didn't really do much, but he put out his own record, his own album um, called Dust on the Road. And it's nothing like what came before it from him. It's a series of really thoughtful... So, so, was, so what you said put out, was this self-produced? Yeah, self-produced. Most of it was played by... How hard is it to do that? Today? Well, I mean, then and today. I mean, I mean obviously- today it's easy, but I mean, back then, uh, a lot of pressing plants wouldn't let just some guy come in and send a tape and make records. I mean, you had to have, a, you know, a setup for that and an account. And they'd only deal with labels, so it was kind of a tough thing to do. Um, and and Mark's 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 dad, Stafford Beer. You can look him up on Wikipedia. He has a really interesting story, too, that involves Chile and the revolution there. And he was this sort of political, economic thinker. And and I know Mark's got a, uh, several brothers and sisters. And I don't know where he is in the, the order, but I, they all seem to be kind of artsy people, at least from what I know. And, yeah, Mark just did it, did his own thing. And it was a really interesting thing. And then he went in and he made this record, called this album called Dust on the Road. And it's sort of along the lines of a Robert Wyatt or Kevin Ayers thing. It's it's very um, a very subtle kind of record, and it has a, there's a certain fragility to it, and it's really beautiful. Um, and he never has done anything. Well, I mean, after that, he really didn't do anything until very recently. So there's about a forty year gap. Um, but uh, this is always it's Dust on the Road's always been one of my favorite records, and the singles are great. And um, I met him a few years ago, and said, I'd really like to put out your records, but I don't know what audience there is for him. And, and just recently I wrote him and said, like, you know, let's 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 reissue Dust on the Road. It's never no one's really heard it. And it's a great record in a sort of s- minimalist singer-songwriter, not really folky, 
not not anyway like Prague, but it kind of came out. It comes out of the same sensibility as some of the better Canterbury stuff, if you know, like that. It's it's really hard to describe, but this is just a, a beautiful song called "Merciful Heavens." One thing that has sort of sprung to mind is one thing that sprung to mind has been going through this. And I sort of briefly touched upon some of them before. Is I think a lot of people are listening it as well. I mean, there are so many different artists who just keep doing their thing. The, the aforementioned Jeffrey Lewis, yeah. for example. Um, I mean, God. There, there, there seems to be an album or a collaboration or a self-release tape or a self-release something every year. And every couple of years he gets a, a label release. But it, everything is slightly different, but it's all still Jeffrey Lewis. Right. Um, there was an artist um, called Simple Kid out of, out of uh, Cork in Ireland uh, in the early noughties. Um, uh, sorry, aughts, uh, as, as, as it's called, the Americans say. <laughs> in the early noughties. And he did what, album one, album two. Um so I kind of did his own thing and then disappeared. Although I discovered he's just basically every so often releasing another single on YouTube yeah. every six months, every nine months. And I'm like, oh, you're just doing your thing. Because between the first album and the second album, he quit the music business, went to work in a video shop. And after about four years, went, yeah, I'll do another album. Yeah. You know, just, there was no chasing success. It was just, I'm doing this because I want to do music. Um, before we get to the final track, uh, just one for the listeners. Um, we are going to end on the final track just because it seems like a perfect place to finish. So if you have liked what you have heard, um, remember, obviously, Tiny Global Productions. We'll put the links in all our things in frequency.co.uk. Please consider supporting the show. Everything's powered by Mixcloud, so we can legally play music. And if you subscribe, then half your subscription goes to the artists anyway. I mean, I get like 60p of it, so it's not like you're even giving me money. Um, right. <laughs> so we're going to be finishing on the last track. And, and, and John, what is the last track, and why are we finishing on it? Uh, the last track is called What Time Is It? by by Ken Nordine. And uh this is the this is really the sound of my childhood. My neither of my parents were remotely interested in music. And at some point when I was really little, somebody gave me a pocket transistor radio and I didn't even think my parents really liked me listening to music, but but when I was like three, I would I would turn it on at night and really low volume and hold it up against my ear. And there was a station called WBEZ in Chicago, uh, which, which BE stands for the Board of Education. It was like owned by the Chicago Board of Education. And it was in news and educational stuff. And in the evening, they would play things by this guy from Chicago called Ken Nordine. And Ken Nordine had... Uh, this really amazing voice, which you'll hear. Uh, he was not a singer, though. He would recite things. He he was he did loads and loads and loads of television adverts and radio adverts because he had this really wonderful radio voice. And he wrote these little pieces where he would tell a little story or some anecdote over kind of a jazzy background, but very you know minimalist jazz. Uh, a very beatnik minimalist jazz. And he would tell these stories and they were always these strange elliptical fables that you couldn't, I mean, well, when I was a kid, I had no, I just loved the sound of it. I had no idea what he was talking about. But even as an adult, some of these things, like you really don't know what, where he's going for. He has an album that has about, that that came out on Dot in the 60s. I think it's called Colors. 
but it has about 60 tracks and they're all, you know, like 45 seconds long where he mentions a color like turquoise. And then he'll just talk about the characteristics of turquoise as if it's a person, you know? And I did list, this was one of the ones that, that confused me most when you, you sent through the stuff earlier yeah. on and I put this on and I sort of, I walked away and I had this instant memory of listening to Richard Burton's reading War of the Worlds on the Jeff Wayne War of the Worlds <laughs> album. <laughs> just, I was like, wait, 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 what's happening? And I had to come back in and sit down and go, okay, okay. I'll ask John about this later. Um, <laughs> but I can also see why he's, why, why it's a perfect one to end on. Yeah. It's a very sort of yeah. trails off into the night kind of thing. Yeah. Well, he was, I don't know. I, I mean, he, he lived, he lived to be quite old and he, he didn't even die that long ago, but I mean, when he's doing this stuff in the sixties, he was, he must've been in his forties. You know, I don't, I don't know that he was like a beatnik or anything. I think he was a, a pretty normal guy and he had, you know, kids and he lived in Chicago. He just had this great voice and he had a very odd sensibility and very odd sense of humor. And so his songs all, or his, well, I shouldn't call them songs, but his pieces all have some sort of message, but in a true beatnik way, I think a lot of it just sounds cool. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm pretty good at interpreting things, but I'm not sure what all these things always mean. But I used to hear this stuff all the time. And when I was up until I was about five or six and we moved further away and I never heard him again. And then I came across it a few years ago and the name meant nothing to me. And then I heard it and instantly I was like, Oh my God, this is the guy I was listening to, you know, in the like late sixties. It just, and it was really spooky because I'd forgotten all about it. And so I started digging really deep and got all, all the records I could. There's a double CD called something like the master of word jazz. And it's great. But this song is, is one of his most, the master of word jazz. Yeah. That's what they call it, word jazz. Because he's talking, he's talking in the way. So what? What this sounds? It sounds like we're going to be listening to William Shatner's version of Rocky. No, Band, no, 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 which... no. That's, that was kind of a funny thing. But but I mean, Ken Nordine was. I don't know where you know. I mean, I'm sure they don't teach him in university or anything like that. But he was a really serious kind of artist, and he's really well respected, and people would. You know, big stars would come to Chicago and they'd want to meet Ken Nordine. I mean, he was he was a real uh, I don't mean that he was a character, but his his work was so unique and strange. Well, but, but I mean, it wasn't even really strange. I take that back. It's just it's really marvelous and there's nothing quite like it. And I think people have probably tried to do stuff that's similar, but no one's really come close. But it's it's really satisfying stuff because occasionally he'll say something that's just right on about something and and maybe not in this song. This is kind of about uh, modern paranoia as I, some sort of parable. I couldn't explain why. Okay. Well, yeah. well, well we're gonna, we are going to, we are going to finish with, we're going to finish with his ramblings on modern paranoia. And before we get to that point, John, thank you ever so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. And um, really, I hope that somebody out there likes some of these songs and checks out what these artists have done because um, almost to a person, they, they have a really high standard of quality with their material. These aren't necessarily just the best songs they've done or anything like that. In fact, in a lot of cases, they were deliberately not. But I think if you like these songs, you should check out the rest of their work. Okay, perfect. So, so thank you very much for coming on. Hopefully the listeners will have found something uh, interesting in there and go and explore. And let's finish on some modern paranoia ramblings of... Was it Ned? No, not Ned. My brain's gone. Ken. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah.